everyone, and thanks again for joining us at the 2023 Sloan Sports Analytic Conference. My name is Michael Christian, and I'm a first-year MBA at MIT Sloan. It is my pleasure to introduce our panel, Big Events, Big Tickets, Big Experiences, Managing the Customer Experience When the Stakes Are High. Our panelists today are Ryan Penke, Chief Operating Officer, Minnesota Timberwolves and Lynx. Zezin Atsoy, SVP of Global Data Strategy and Analytics, AXS. Brian LaFemina, Chief Business Officer, LA2028. And Molly Pendleton, Head of Touring Events, Business and Operations, Event Lab. Our panel will be moderated by Shira Springer from MIT Sloan. The panel will run for 45 minutes, and we will leave 10 minutes at the end for questions. Please submit questions on Twitter using the hashtag PickTickets. The questions will then be selected by the moderator. So with that, I'll turn it over to you, Shira. Thank you, Michael, and thank you to the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference for hosting this panel, and thank you all for coming, uh, and thank you to our panelists. I'm looking forward to a very interesting discussion about big events and ticketing. Um, and I know you all have experience with big events. So that's where we're going to start, some of the opportunities and challenges that you face um, and insights you can offer when it comes to ticketing and big events. And I think, if this is no exaggeration, that no big event is more complicated from a ticketing perspective than the Olympics. So Brian, we'll start off with you. Can you give us some insight into the process, a little bit of a glimpse behind the scenes with LA 2028 and what you are doing in terms of ticketing and preparing for the flood of interest you are going to receive. Absolutely. Um, well, it's an exciting time for us at LA 28, and you know, managing and, and running an Olympic Games is an incredibly complicated endeavor, as you guys would imagine. Uh, as it relates to ticketing, just to put it in some sort of context, we're going to sell about 12 million tickets for the Olympic and Paralympic Games. So the Olympic Games are going to run for 16 days, and then we're going to take a break, and then we get, do it all over again with the, with the Paralympics. Um, we're going to have 15,000 athletes. We're going to have 800 discrete ticketed events during the Olympic Games. So as you can imagine, it's, it's incredibly complicated. And the place that we start uh, in, in all things uh, is with the data uh, and trying to aggregate as much as we possibly can from previous editions of the Games, from information that the IOC has from past experiences and other events that we've all worked on before. The challenge is, as you would imagine, this isn't as though you're running a league or you're running a team where you've got a game every day or a game every week. The Olympics only happen every four years. They happen in very different contexts in different countries and different continents. Um, and as we start to look for comps, one of the things we, we look at is what would be the Olympic Games that we could really lean the most on. And you might think that London would be a great one, as we do, but by the time we get to LA, that's, you know, that's going to be you know, 16 years in the past. So what we, what we try and do is to understand as best we can from the previous editions of the games from Tokyo, uh, which just happened, even though there weren't any fans there, they did have a full you know, ticket strategy. They did sell all of their tickets, so we were able to get some of that. We're going to work on uh, all the information that we learned from Paris, uh, coming up next summer, which we're really excited about. But the most important thing for us is to always be on the cutting edge of the Olympic movement. And what we want to do is take all the, uh, all the experiences that, that we have and all the, um, you know, the, the great 
professionals we have in the sports industry here in the U.S. and bring them to bear so that we can improve the Olympic movement and so that after LA 28, we're leaving not just a, a legacy of the games, but a business legacy that, um, that really hasn't happened previously. I'm going to turn to you now, Molly. Um, in your role with Eventelect, you deal with ticketing for a variety of major sports events. And I hope I'm getting these right here. The U.S. Open, Kentucky Derby, you've got the Gold Cup, you've got college bowl games. And there's an interesting kind of balancing act, I would think, that goes on between the business strategy um, for your partners and, and, and for these big events with the desire to create a really great fan experience. So, so how do you negotiate that? Yeah, so I think it really starts with looking at the fact that we are in very different partnerships. Some are, um, you know, events that are happening in the same market and it's the same offering year after year. Others are what I call traveling circuses. It's different matchups. It's different markets every year. And how do we utilize the data to figure out, okay, what's a comp? How do we, what, you know, what do we look at? But at the end of the day, one of the main focuses for us, for all of our partners, is you know, looking at it as a unified marketplace and really being able to see, you know, I use the analogy all the time, it's like buying a pair of Nikes. It doesn't matter if you buy it at Nike.com or in a department store or you know, at Champ Sports, consumers in the U.S. no longer delineate between secondary and primary ticket marketplaces. And so why should properties and how do we develop strategies that really deliver for the fans as it relates to the experience of buying tickets and also the experience once you get in the door? Mm -hmm. And Ryan, the big event in the NBA and the mm -hmm. WNBA playoff games, um, in addition probably global games as well. Um, games that are, are, are overseas. Uh, same question posed to Molly. How do you negotiate um, the business interests that you, your clubs, have? Yeah, it's fascinating. You hear, Brian, you know, we're five years away and how many million tickets? 12 million tickets, right? So for a two-week run, they're thinking for years and years and years. Interesting about the NBA, WNBA, right? So we have 70 regular season games, you know, when you, when you go between those home games to sell out. You try to be as strategic as you possibly can, and yet you find yourself very reactionary at times. When you have four games in a week, you've got to think differently around what is a big event. So you get out in front as much as you can around, you know, the where you can create sort of, we call it peak on peak, but where you can create opportunities to drive big crowds, and when you get to a time like the playoffs, you've got to capitalize and look at it as how do we get as many fans the opportunity to engage with our brand, our products, as possible. And Sazen, you deal with analytics behind big sports events, but interestingly, you have experience in the airline industry and in the entertainment industry, so I am wondering how, what overlaps you see there, where you borrow from your knowledge from those industries and apply it to sports industry, the sports industry and what you found helpful as you, as you deal with sports given your experience. Sure. <clears throat> so I had a little bit of an unusual background where I started in the airlines and revenue management department uh, doing pricing decisions, yield management, and then uh, brought that to sports at the Cleveland Cavaliers for single game tickets and brought uh, what I learned at Cavaliers to Hollywood uh, using data for green lighting decisions and uh, marketing decisions. And then my role at Access is a nice combination of all the three roles. So I oversee data strategy analytics as well as consumer marketing and the MarTech strategy. Um, 
you may not think about it this way, but there's a lot of similarities between airlines and uh, sports or live entertainment tickets. Uh, demand and supply are the two dynamics, right? And it's a varying degree of demand and supply at different times of the day. Also, uh, it's a fixed cost product. The flight has to leave without, regardless of how many passengers. The game needs to be played or, or the, the concert is going to go on. So how do you uh, make decisions for either ticket sales, pricing, inventory, knowing what you have to work with? There are also quite a lot of differences, of course, where competition isn't the same. You have, can take American Airlines or United to get to the same place you're trying to get to, but there's only one playoff game for Timberwolves, maybe for that matchup, one concert, right? So that uh, consumer or fan engagement is different between the two. Uh, between movies uh, or entertainment and the live entertainment, uh, the product, it's a product of passion. And uh, you know, when I was working at the movie studio or at the team, really our goal is to put the product on the court or in the movie theater in the best position to sell. Like I, I myself, I'm not a player or I'm not an actor, I'm not in the creative part of it, but what can I do to make sure I find the right audience, right targeting, right messaging points, right um, platforms to put that uh, product in the best position to sell. So those are ways that I was able to translate learnings from one to another industry. That sounds very interesting. I like the, the interplay between the industries. Mm -hmm. uh, Molly, we have, we've had some conversations about ticketing. And I want to kind of dive, you know, move the conversation a little bit deeper into the fan experience and looking at consumers and fan behavior as well. Um, you have talked about wanting to, I'm going to quote you, do right by fans. And I'm curious, when you say that, what does that mean to you, to event elect, um, especially when you can have such different fan experiences depending on when and how fans buy tickets? Sure. So I, I think it starts from the beginning when we're looking at big events, and I'll use touring specifically when we're starting from ticket one, and we don't have similar constraints of seasons and many plans, et cetera. But it starts from the scaling of the building and being realistic. You can be in a 70,000-seat NFL stadium, but 50,000 is still great for this event. You know, why are we building out and opening 70,000 seats? And you can get to the same ATP and remove you know, 10,000 of the cheapest tickets, which can give you some lower prices downstairs, and that fan gets a better seat for, you know, or a better seat for the same price because you are able to shut that down. You always have the ability to open it up. And so it starts with the scaling, and then it goes to, you know, what is fair market pricing and being able to look at our data to say, for equivalent events, you know, where should we start? and really understanding that we want to appreciate within the life cycle of the ticket and, and try to get away from you know, scalping people that are buying early and why are we punishing them for doing what we want, right? We want them to buy early in the cycle. Nobody wants to be two weeks out and trying to sell 20,000 seats. So let's train the consumers to purchase early and know that that's when they're going to get the best seat and the best price. And the, one of the best ways to do that is to create a cohesive um, pricing strategy across primary and secondary. Really, you shouldn't have a huge gap. You know, unless you're in a sellout position, it should be only 20 to 30 percent where you're, you know, you're trying to maximize those best seats. Um, but it's part of an overall strategy, and, and you're doing that in unison um, as part of it. Gotcha. Now um, we've talked a little bit about race to the bottom. I think in the context of everything that everyone does, but, but Brian and Ryan specifically, you know we're looking far ahead, but what kind of strategies are you employing now? And either one of you can take this first 
to avoid that race to the bottom that sometimes occurs? There, there's a few things. One, I mean, I agree with everything Molly talked about. We, you know, backing up, we were the we were the last arena in the country that was built with a essentially 10,000 seats in the upper level, 8,000 seats in the lower belt level. Every every arena since flipped, right? Where you've got 10 or 11,000 seats in the lower bowl, seven or 8,000 upstairs. So coming out of the pandemic, you know, where we went almost two years with, with no and little fans are, you know, many people hadn't been downtown Minneapolis for, for years and so, or for two years. And so for us coming out, we decided last season, we're gonna reduce capacity from 19,000 down to about 17,000. And when you look at new arenas that have been built in Sacramento, Milwaukee, some of the newer stadiums, they're 16,500, 17,000 capacity. And so as we start to think about that, we took it down and it was fascinating what happened despite having 2,000 less seats last year and despite managing through uh, you know, still COVID restrictions for parts of last year in Minnesota, we had the most single game ticket revenue we ever had, right, with several thousand fewer seats. And it's a trend that we decided this year as our season ticket base is coming back to actually keep the reduced capacity and you know, focus on average ticket price. And so I think what, eliminating sort of the worst seats in the house, you no longer need to have, it's, never, it's no longer about capacity and how many seats can you possibly sell. It's about optimizing the revenue in the seats that you do have. And so I think that's, one strategy and then we've got some things you know with access our partner and working with our ticketing you know partners around how do we how do we eliminate the race to the bottom which i can get into as well but go ahead brian yeah so in previous roles i've had the race to the bottom or you know seeing you know the bottom fall out of your your pricing model on the secondary market something that you spend a lot of time thinking about in the olympic context that, that really isn't what my concern is I think what's interesting about a multi-sport event like the Olympics, people are going to come because they want to be a part of that, that overall amazing experience of this, this large global event. But within that, as I said, there are 800 different you know, sessions that we're going to have to sell and you know, over 30 sports that are ultimately going to be uh, competed in. What we want to make sure we do is that we find buyers who want to buy for each one of those specific things. Some people may just be there for the, for the experience and going to any Olympic event is great. But to the extent that there may be pockets of badminton fans or handball fans or any other kind of fan, we want to make sure that we do everything we can to find those people and make sure that they are invested in each one of the tickets that gets purchased. Because in, in addition to selling all the tickets, which we really don't have a lot of concern about, we want to make sure that every ticket is utilized. The last thing we want is for somebody to sort of buy a package of tickets and then not go to one of the events. So we're gonna be putting a lot of policies in place and utilizing technology in such a way that every ticket gets maximally utilized in addition to selling all the tickets, which as I said, you know, for Olympic Games, we, we believe we're gonna have overwhelming demand in Los Angeles. Is the work on that starting already? I mean, just in terms of figuring out where you get the pockets of badminton fans and how to attract them, and, and are you where are you are where are you in that stage? Well, I, I would say that that's work that we're really starting to dig into right now. Okay. Um, but before you even get to that, it's you know, and somebody mentioned it earlier. I think Molly mentioned it, which is how do you right size each one of the venues for whatever sport it is? And I think what's unique and one of the advantages we have at LA 28 of being an organizing committee that was stood up four years prior to when most would be stood up. So we had an 11 year run as opposed to a seven year run. We really got to get ahead of a lot of our planning. And in addition to that, being in the city of Los Angeles, which has just you know, an abundance of, of places to, uh, to have events, amazing stadiums, amazing arenas, amazing operators, for all of those. 
uh, we've been able to really advance what's, what venues we're going to use and the overlay that needs to be put into it to make those facilities ready in the Olympic context. And the reason I bring that up is our team is integrated and we're looking for holistic solutions for every one of our stakeholders, not just fans, that's an important one, but athletes, international federations, national Olympic committees, there's just a tremendous amount of different stakeholders. So our ticketing team, our analytics team, our venue design team, they're all working in concert to understand how sh what should the size of these venues be? What are the trade-off analyses around? How many more seats can you put in? And does that optimally, does it let you optimally price? What's the cost of building out an arena for, for, for more uh, seats or less seats? So we've been at it for a long time to make sure that we've got the right venues for every single sport. We understand how much it costs to build those uh, venues. And when I say build, we're not building anything permanently, but to overlay it to make it ready in the Olympic context. And at that point now, it's time to start figuring out where are those pockets of fans. So soon after Paris, we will you know, open up uh, people being able to uh, register and let us know their interest in Olympic ticketing for LA 28. And that'll give us a good sense and really begin the work in earnest of how we're going to go about trying to convert uh, interest into actual sales. And I think for and when we talk about not, you know not bundling right and making sure that also goes back to making sure that you're getting to the end user or the end consumer. And so we you know I stood up at bowl season last year on a, on a panel and I said my recommendation is that nobody goes on sale until decision Sunday, which is a terrifying prospect for promoters because in the context of bowls that means you have anywhere from a two to four week window. But if you don't know that matchup, we were able to go back and look at the data and it shows us that 90% of those sales, you know, the ones that are transacting on the primary marketplace that aren't, you know, the memberships and the group and the community group sales are transferred. Those are garage brokers who are coming in and buying up a lot of that inventory on spec, hoping that you get a great matchup, right? And, and so they're taking the bet on that. But in the end of, you know, at the end of the day, those aren't actual sales, and they're going to be competing with you. And so as much as you can insulate your event from those outside sales, because you have both sides of the coin, right? You get a great matchup, and a lot of stuff is already out on the market, and that that revenue is not retained by the partnership or, or the content that's putting it on. Or on the other side of the coin, you know, in the bowls, you get a bad matchup, and now you know you've got 2,000 tickets on the market, and you don't have the influence over maintaining control. Because a lot of times for those events, it doesn't come down to it's a matter of price; it's a matter of demand. And so we look at it as if somebody's going to pay $15, they're probably going to pay 25, and that 20 is more of a brand appropriate price and but we can't maintain that if there are you know a hundred other people in the marketplace with a thousand to two thousand tickets look most most teams venues events have got partnerships with companies like event elect or other partners that help you sort of price appropriately who are you targeting and kind of manage what's happening in the secondary market the race to the bottom starts because too many people are trying to sell tickets you know so that the the fundamental issue is that there's too many people trying to sell, and so they go one dollar less and a dollar less and a dollar less. And so you've got to have the right partnerships in place. You've got to use technology as best you can, Sezen, to help you, you know, hold those lines at times, which can be controversial. But it's something we leaned into a decade ago, and rarely hear, you know, anything about it at this point. Just creating those price floors that you're not willing to let tickets go below. You have a price floor, right? We do. In Minnesota. Uh, we do. So it's it's seventy five percent of what you pay, right? And so the the critical piece to that 
really starts with variable pricing. You have to be able to look at, you know, if I pay $100 on average, you know, we don't actually have any games where it's $100, right? So it, it's, if we're playing whoever on a, you know, a lower tier team on a Tuesday night, I don't give an opponent now because we're all competing right now, so I don't want to say any names, but if you play a lower tier opponent on a Tuesday night, you're going to price that much differently than the Warriors on a Friday, right? And so it's the fundamental piece starts there, and then we kind of protect the customer. So the season ticket holder value, you know, they don't like it if there's a game that they don't sell, but for every game that, you know, they, they don't sell, there's also games that they hold the price at 75 so we, we do create that. We work with Access and others. Our secondary partners, they don't go below that. So we kind of manage the price floor appropriately that way. Mm -hmm. Your point is, Sazen. Yeah. <clears throat> Where do you come into all of this and, and what insights can you bring to this conversation yep. and process? Yeah, I did want to say a couple things about the scaling and then the initial pricing. Those are very key, right? And you do want to uh, look at your historical data. Also, anything we can help with, there's behavioral data, maybe on the website, people looked at different seats and how does that translate into demand that we can uh, help our partners with uh, doing the right scaling. We have the uh, commingled seat map, so it's all out there, right? Primary and secondary. And all for us, it's really, we want to be able to provide the technology to enable our clients to do, if they want to do a price floor, they can. If they don't want to, they, they don't have to. So we kind of uh, really enable them to make, uh, make those decisions and uh, activate those. Uh, the initial pricing is also very key, obviously, but you do want to you know, have a dynamic strategy because your demand is going to vary. I mean, I, um, I'm not going to remember the player's name correctly, but um, in the dunk contest, you know, the G League player now is going to be, I think, for the 76ers. Mm -hmm. Suddenly the games that he's going to show up now will be, I'm sure there's going to be higher demand, right? You want to have a flexibility in your pricing strategy, as, and it's not just the dynamic pricing that we know with the airline background, but also having as many as price points uh, that you want that gives you that flexibility to later make changes. So in our system, you can create as many as price levels. And uh, I've taken advantage of that when I was on the Cavs and the client side. So really, we could react to things rather quickly. So, and the other thing I was gonna say is, it's a lot about customer segmentation when I think of resale. Um, there are people that only buy from resale. I mean, we've looked at the analysis. Um, there are people that just wait until the very moment to buy. Uh, to Molly's point, of course, they likely won't have the same availability, obviously, and same pricing options. But uh, just you know, really think of this as not just uh, revenue or transactional data, but also what are we learning about our customers so that our marketing, in our marketing channels, we can speak to them differently. Mm -hmm. I think that's a big part of resale. So I want to touch on one thing that's an interesting new wrinkle with Olympic ticketing. Um, as I understand it, the organizing committee for LA 20 is going to be responsible for selling tickets globally. That's uh, a shift in IOC policy, right? Uh, and that's going to go into effect actually with Paris um, in 2024. Curious, <laughs> what opportunities and maybe more what challenges um, does that present for, for an LA-based organization? Some challenges, but a lot of opportunity. And you know, I'll just go back a couple of years. So, um, because we had this, as I said, 11-year run-up to the games, we we're able to sort of think about the business a little bit differently than maybe other organizing committees have had the benefit to do. And one of the first things that we identified was the hospitality business. 
and we, we thought that there was a, a real opportunity to create a better, um, a better experience for all of our, our stakeholders, specifically our, our fans and hospitality buyers, but our sponsors as well. Um, what had happened previously is that it was really disaggregated and you had a bunch of third parties that would sell hospitality packages all around the world. And it was broken down both geographically and then um, also by, by sport in some instances. And we looked at this and said, we think there's a more efficient way to, to do this. And so we, we started speaking with the IOC and our partners at Paris 24 and Milano Cortina 26 about all going in together and creating an opportunity for one company to be the global hospitality provider across multiple editions of the games. And what that really allowed to happen is that people, when they were buying something, there'd be transparency in what the product would look like. Again, you don't have 10 different companies delivering a hospitality product in one games. So there'd be transparency as far as what the delivery would be, transparency as far as what the pricing would be. Um, and then a company that was getting smarter <coughs> from games to games to games to games, because normally you'd have somebody in for games and then out for another one. So we had a lot of convincing to do with, um, with, with the IOC to get them to change a whole host of policies, which they did, and we were fortunate uh, to do a deal with On Location, who's the global hospitality provider for the next three Olympic Games starting in Paris. Um, so that's my commercial for On Location, if Paul's in the room. Um, but in addition to that, that led to, well, how are you gonna handle ticketing? And what had happened previously is that there was an allocation on a country-by-country -country basis where they would get a certain number of tickets and then those tickets would make their way into the marketplace. And once again, there was this sort of uneven delivery, uh, lack of transparency in pricing. Um, and it was, it was really confusing. And if there was, let's say, a lot of people in France who wanted to buy tickets and you know, not as many in Germany, there was no way to have portability between those two sets of tickets. They were sort of locked into um, a certain geography. So the IOC um, made the decision to allow the organizing committees to sell globally, which I think is going to be a much better user experience. I think it's gonna be a lot easier for people to understand what's happening in, in, in Olympic ticketing, um, but it does create certain challenges. We are right now in the marketplace with an RFP for our ticketing system provider. Um, so we're gonna be choosing our ticketing system over the next several months and what that, the question that obviously leads to is who can sell the tickets on a global basis, right? Is there one company that can actually do this? And so we're gonna be looking for solutions to say, all right, maybe somebody can't do everything, maybe there's some white label opportunities, but obviously selling tickets in North America or in Western Europe is very different than selling in Asia. So we're gonna to have to make sure that we have the right partners, but at the end of the day, all those decisions are controlled at LA28 to make those deals and make sure that this works for, for all the stakeholders. Brian, when will, when will you guys actually start selling tickets? We're like still it, working on is that. Is it I, how many <laughs> years out? Like I, I, we would like to be in market sooner than any other organizing committee. Um, I would say that end of 25, beginning of 26 is probably what we're looking at. So a full two and a half years prior to our games. Now we will, we will take um, an interest uh, level from people prior to that, we'll, you know, whether it's you know, somebody signing up for, you know, um, information or to put themselves on, on some sort of a list. Uh, so we'll have a, a Trying to collect data to, to, to see market. who you're going to target. And exactly. Right. Uh, but we think we'll actually be on sale sometime two, two and a half years prior to the games. Do other events in the market, like World Cup, for instance, being here in 26, affect your on sales timeline at all? No. no. <laughs> There's something also you mentioned earlier, and I'm, I'm actually curious to get Molly's perspective on it as well, which was the comps, the issue with comps and the challenge that you're finding when it comes to comps. Because you're, you're putting those tickets out there and you have your timeline and you just said it's not really affected by 2026. But 
are, where, are, where are you looking? Do you, are you, and then, but also Mali, Gold Cup, all of those events seem like those would be comp challenges too. Maybe we'll start with Mali and then you can, can add to, to, but just the challenges you face for certain events finding good comps. Sure. So in international soccer, right, you, you don't have the same matchup in the same market. So it's looking at how do we transpose something that happened at NRG in Houston to MetLife Stadium? How do you look at if we've had a Classico, Real Madrid, Barcelona in Miami and Vegas now, what does that look like, you know, in, in the next market that it goes to? And I'll say the same thing for, you know, matchup. If you have a bowl game, what does that look like? You know, we will have four different pricing scenarios for our bowl partners and we utilize, you know, we might have a day or two heads up before selection Sunday as to where they're going to end up from, from a matchup standpoint. And we can look at our you know, road, um, you know, road data for college football games and say, how well does that team travel? What can we anticipate there? You know, coming off conference losses, conference championship losses, how does that usually affect the data set? And, and being able to try to transpose that. I think on the other side, for more league-based items, when we look at teams that get into the playoffs when they haven't been there before, how do we look at like markets and, and the the pricing isn't going to be the same, but how can we look at it on a percentage basis? What is the percentage lift by, you know, by round against the regular season pricing aggregated across multiple teams that are in like markets to be able to at least give them a North Star to, to work towards when they don't have the data to look at? Brian, did you want to add anything with regard to comps? Anything, that, I know you spoke about it previously, but what you're doing based on Molly. Look, in, in the Olympic context, there are no direct comps. So I think what we have to do is take a whole lot of different data points and string them together to come up with you know, the, the, the best solution for LA28. Um, even if you had a perfect comp, let's say, in Paris, just the willingness to pay for big events in Europe is just fundamentally different than it is in North America generally and LA specifically. And anybody who's paying attention to the pricing on the secondary market for the Super Bowl in Los Angeles last year, y you know that it's a very robust market and one where we're going to be able to do very, very well. That being said, for us, it's not all about maximum you know, revenue optimization. We also wanna make sure that we're creating enough um, affordable tickets so that the people of the city of Los Angeles are going to have an opportunity and underserved communities are going to have an opportunity to have an Olympic experience. And sometimes that might mean a competition, sometimes that might be some other type of Olympic experience that we're going to put on during the games, but that's a very, very important uh, part of, of our mission is to make sure that this isn't just, you know, for, for the, the wealthy and that there is an opportunity for everybody to have an Olympic experience at LA 28. Um, so long-winded way of saying, though, that it's not just one data point or one comp. We're really pulling a lot of these different comps together from previous games, from big events in North America, from specific um, sports, as I mentioned earlier. So, you know, what is this sport or that sport? How popular is that in the context of Olympic Games and in the context of in Los Angeles? So, you know, we're, we're, we've done several ticketing models. It continues to get better and more nuanced every single year. And again, as I said, we're not going to market for a little bit, so we still have some time to, to get that. Perfect. And you gotta be careful with comps too, right? Who you're going to compare yourselves against because it can be misleading at times, right? So if you're, if you're you know, we're in a league, we have 30 teams in the NBA, we have a dozen teams in the WNBA. If you live too much into, you know, what do the, the Portland Trailblazers charge for their tickets, like it's, We've got to be informed, but you can't make decisions based on that because you've got to trust your own data and the own 
teams that are making those decisions around what does it say in your specific market, your specific event, your specific day of the week, all of those different things that play into it because otherwise you can get too caught up in that. So I think you've got to be informed and you've got to be you know, educated and lean on it, but you can't make decisions just based on what some other market or team in our case does. Yeah, I think, I think that's a really good point. And I think as we think about comps, it's more about relative value mm -hmm. within a certain sport or within a certain venue. Um, not so much that we're gonna say, okay, this, you know, this Olympics had a $100 ticket, it's gonna be $100. It's more, hey, these seats were at certain price. What was the relative value throughout that venue for, for that event? in the Olympic context. So that, that's an important way that we look at it. I, I agree with you that to just pull a comp and say that's what the price should be is, is, is nowhere near nuanced enough. I think it's also not just pricing, but as well as pacing, trying to find comps to understand how are we doing relative to the sales timeline and what does that look like? Because I do think, you know, as we get into different demographic, like fan demographics, you know, how do we compare ourselves to know are we behind and, and really what does good look like? Okay. Jason, I, th thank you for, <laughs> welcome back. Um, actually, you're joining, rejoining at a good time. I don't want to put you on the spot right away, but I'm, I'm going to do it anyway. Sure, go ahead. Um, <laughs> you know, we're talking about pricing, and you have, you know, you talk about accessibility and fairness, and mm -hmm. if you could talk a little bit about what the fair access system sure. is designed to do um, and how it works. Of course, okay. Um, apologies, just a lingering cough. We're all so mad at you. Um, and, uh, no, not COVID, just, just for the room, <laughs> for you guys also. Um, sure, so <clears throat> we uh, have developed this program called Fair Access, where uh, fans, right now we've done it for a music uh, client, uh, fans can register for events for their right to buy tickets uh, at pre-sale and on-sale. Uh, it's really worked really well uh, in this one that we've done. Zach Bryan uh, got really good feedback. Um, we as a ticketing company, again, just really looking to provide technology to enable the client to pick who they want to sell to and the price they want to sell that to. Uh, in the, just give the fan the most fair shot as possible with this product. Um, Talking about global events, uh, I was listening to the conversation <laughs> behind. Um, we have a, a lottery system that we are developing for Japan. So in Japan, a lot of events uh, have uh, this lottery system where the consumer can uh, join a lottery for one event or multiple events. And then they can win either one event or multiple, depending on the rules. But it's all, again, back to the clients who are making those rules. and. We're really excited to bring that product at scale to U.S. Uh, and um, so that's the, yeah, that's the part we want to do with the fair access. Just curious, we talked, uh, no secret that we do some conversations uh, prior to, to these panels. And, and one of the things that came up was you know, there's an option of not allowing fans to resell tickets um, yet. The, the, the value, the benefit of a digital ticket is that you can resell. I'm just curious, are we headed to a, a future where you think fans will be unable to resell big event tickets? I mean, is this something that we're going to be able, going to see, are they gonna be locked down effectively once purchased? 
I sure hope not. I think I'd be out of a job at that point. <laughs> um, no, I, I don't think so because I think at the end of the day, you know, content wants to do right by the consumer. I mean, she, you know, says in, references Zach Bryan, which is like Fort Knox to get into, right? And so I, I think that works for individual artists. I think on the global scale, content, whether that's music artists or teams, they want to provide their teams flexibility. I think that would even deter you know, fans from buying season tickets if they don't have a little bit of flexibility. So I just don't see that happening. Um, I do see, you know, teams and properties getting smarter about how they manage the process and, and you know, the partners that they work with to make sure that they're, they are maintaining pricing integrity throughout. I don't, I don't think, you know, this was 15 years ago, season ticket holders all had share partners, right? And they, they shared it and it was, you know, they'd get together and they'd draft out their games and they'd split it out. You know, the secondary market today in so many ways is the share partner, right? So I think in the, for a team, you know, your season ticket base is still gonna be your lifeblood. And so giving them opportunities to sell and um, offload games and things like that, I think is gonna be a, an important part. We have done things with promotional tickets, certainly comp tickets, things like that, that you know, if you buy in at a special promotion at this price that we actually have, have locked down the ability to sell in certain things, but it would be more promotionally driven on the front end or things that are close to comp, strategic comp tickets, things like that. Okay, Talk, we were talking a little bit about, with, with Brian, accessibility. I love what you're saying about everybody having a shot to experience the Olympics in some way and, and whether it's an actual event or some other related um, experience and pricing those things appropriately. And of course, gonna go there, it brings to mind Taylor Swift and, and all that happened there. <laughs> and, and people being able to get into those big events and have that experience. Um, and we can't have a panel about ticketing without talking about Taylor Swift. Um, what do you see as the potential impact of what happened there? Um, is it going to be new legislation and regulations for the industry? We'll start, we'll start there with that question. I know, Ryan. There'll, yeah, there will be states so. that explore legislation, right, that, you know, it's already happening to a degree. Whether that legislation passes or goes through, you know, is anyone's guess. But there will be things that some of it might be more political than, than, than not. I think it'll be a more tech, technological challenge for companies like Access and others of the, the ticketing um, companies that are gonna have to adjust certain things around transparency perhaps on the front end of a purchase, things like that, that I think is where a lot of the legislative conversations seem to be moving. Yeah, I would just hope that before legislation gets you know too far down the line that people start to understand why these things happen from time to time and it's just, you know, there, there's just a huge differential between what Taylor Swift, um, T-Swizz for you guys who are friends with her, um, <laughs> what, what Taylor Swift is willing to charge on the primary marketplace versus what the market believes actually those tickets is. are worth. Yeah, what it's actually worth. Right, and, and as long as you have that kind of arbitrage window open, people are gonna find a way to, you know, to, to, to make their way through it. So, you know, I think you know, in some of the conversations I've, I've heard from, from people talking about this, it seems to me that there's a fundamental misunderstanding of what happened and why it happened. So um, I don't think secondary market's gonna go away. I don't think that people are gonna, uh, I don't think it's gonna be, people are gonna be unable to resell tickets. 
Um, but I, I'm sure that there may be some reaction to this, and I just hope it's not an over-rotation. Yeah, I think fan experience and transparency is you know, paramount, right? But a lot of times legislation is a blunt instrument and it can have really unintended consequences. And a lot of times, you know, if you, I don't know if anybody else nerded out and watched, you know, C-SPAN when they were going through the hearings, but you know, they, beyond quoting Taylor Swift lyrics, right? <laughs> I don't think a lot of people educated themselves as to the complexities of ticketing. And I, I think that's a real shortfall. So how can you create legislation when you don't fully understand the complexities of, of, of you know, the industry? And I think that, you know, in a perfect world, everyone, you know, we can have the model, um, you know, every ticket's $85 and we want to do right by our fans and, and that's great, but we live in a market economy and demand is going to be there, then, then it's going to shift. I think a lot of times in music, um, because it's attached to a specific artist and not a brand, they are reluctant to basically acknowledge that the secondary market even exists. And so because of that, they don't go into it with a strategy of saying, you know, how do we, how do we, you know, shrink the gap of margin and be able to, you know, scarecrow the market in a way that when people go on and you have these bots, you know, what can we do to deter the bots that go on and buy up everything and they start the price at six times face value and then we see that massive depreciation towards the end when the demand just isn't there. So we talk about that fair market pricing and really if you're only like 30, you know, 30 to 35% above primary to start and, and to scarecrow the market, people don't see that margin. And after they get through with buy and sell fees, you know, it's, it's not appealing to them anymore. So what are the, what are the steps that you can take, well, as we talked about before, to insulate your market, but sticking your hand, head in the sand and pretending like it doesn't exist isn't going to work. Um, so what are the strategies that you can put in place to, to protect yourself and your fans? Yeah, access um, <clears throat> for some states, New York, uh, we do provide all-in pricing at the first part of the customer journey. Uh, and uh, as I understand, other states are passing that too. So from a technology standpoint, we've, we have done it. And uh, it is, um, you know, in the past, I believe it's been tried, but only maybe one platform did it and the rest didn't. So this one would mandate, mandate everyone to do it, which I think is the right move for it. It would make it transparent for everyone. Yeah, if it was all in pricing across all platforms, then I think you're right back where you are now, essentially. Um, I think if one does it or is forced to do it or some states are forced to do it and others aren't, I think you're going to see a distortion in the market that's going to be you know, hard for everybody to get their heads around. But I think the New York law is a good example. It's all in price, or it's face value pricing, right? I mean, who, who understands what face value pricing is, right? Is that the mini plan price? Is that the season ticket holder price? Is that the single game price? Is that the group price? Like, how are we defining this? And it's, again, one of those things, a blunt instrument of legislation when you don't fully understand the complexity, how can you you know, how can you regulate it in that way? Mm -hmm. And there's, there's short and long-term strategies at play, right? So where, I don't know this, but Taylor Swift under, it's less likely that it's pricing inefficiency. Somebody knows that there's a big gap from what she's selling it for to what it's worth. Um, but it's a long-term strategy that I want to develop fans and I want to be affordable and I'm gonna be here for a very long time and so, Yes, she could make more money on any individual show. You know, we go through it in the sports, on the, on the team side for playoffs, right? We, are we trying to make every dollar we possibly can in a playoff game or a playoff series, or are we actually trying to build long-term fan base 
and using those games to attract new customers. And there's a balance all the time on those types of events where, of course, we're trying to maximize revenue and opportunity, but we're also looking at this for you know, generational, how are we gonna continue building fans and giving people access and exposure to our events. I think you're gonna see teams and, and other properties utilizing some of the tools that have been available to people who are, um, are selling in the secondary market as a primary way to, to, to sell those tickets. So, you know, selling season tickets is obviously one part of the business, but going out and just, you know, putting the rest of your, your inventory on one platform at one price is probably not the best way for them to sort of control the, the experience, meet, meet the buyers where they are because people are on all different kinds of platforms and there would be price differentials on all those and teams have generally not had the tools at their disposal but I think they're getting really smart about it really fast and they're using the same tools that secondary sellers always have. So it's gonna be interesting to see how those tickets make their way into the marketplace. Previously it was they'd sell primarily and then they'd end up on the secondary through a broker or, or some other uh, mechanism and you know they were out of the market. But I think they're gonna continue to be in the market using the same tools and to Molly's point, you know, sort of staging the market at an appropriate pace so that you never lose control of what the, you know, the, the value of the ticket is. It becomes a distribution strategy and empowers the client to really manage the yield, optimize the yield that way. So, And I think it goes back to the, the unified strategy and the way that we look at it as one overall marketplace because there is that fluidity of inventory and right, it's not like, you know, a very traditional model where we have this number of seasons and this many of groups and you're gonna sell your stuff and we're gonna sell our stuff and at the end of the day, we're in competition. How do we blend that together? And we are really an extent, you know, your partner is an extension of what you are doing. We have mass amounts of data and, and software and a data science team that's much smarter than me that really can inform and, and be, you know, a second set of hands on, you know, TM or access and making those primary market changes at the same time, it's, it's filtering in the secondary market data. So it's a more holistic look at, at the marketplace. Love the conversation that we're having that's been generated by Taylor Swift. You've also kind of taken care of about <laughs> half the audience uh, questions in the process, but there are still a good group of them to go through. And I'm just gonna start um, at the top and whoever wants to jump in can jump in, but we'll try to get to um, as many as, of them as we can in the next, you know, ten, roughly 10 minutes. Um, many people keep tickets as memorabilia. However, ticketing has gone electric at almost every level, which has totally changed the ticketing process. Do you see physical ticketing coming back? So we're, we're going retro here. No. 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 We Good. have Check. souvenir tickets as an option, which we do for clients, but yeah, I agree. But, I but that being said, I do think that the collectible is an important part of the experience, and I think as an industry, we probably have to do a better job of giving some, giving people something to commemorate their attendance to a big event, or any event for that matter. So I think we've probably not done as good a job on that, but I just think that the, the advantages of electronic ticketing or digital ticketing is just too great to go backwards. But as I say, let's, let's go to the you know, LA 28. People are gonna want some sort of souvenir. Are you thinking at all at this stage, five years out, about some sort of ticketing collectible? We are. Uh, we will be 100% digital, so there's, there will be no paper tickets for LA 28. That's, a, you know, that, that's something we're committed to. But yes, obviously something of the magnitude of an Olympic Games, people are going to want to commemorate the fact that they were there. And yes, we are something we're thinking about. And they're going to charge them again for that collectible. <laughs> <laughs> 
we have it, so you make the decision. <laughs> um, let's see, uh, we have here, this is for um, Ryan. How do you go about ticket sales when there are so many unknown variables like NBA players sitting out of games? I think it's also like, you know, how does that affect the way you look? One, you have to, I mean, it's a, it's a real challenge, right? And, you know, if you have, uh, you know, if you have the Warriors coming through once and, and Steph is injured, I mean, whether it's load management or whether he's injured, it, it doesn't matter. He didn't play. And so you have that sort of real challenge. I think the opportunity for teams is we've got to be bigger than any player or opponent. Like our experience has to stand up on its own. And, you know, when you look at the data that drives, you know, our business intelligence teams here, they do a phenomenal job. The data that drives pricing and value is much more day of the week even than it is opponent, right? So like we've got to, we've got to live up to the value that people are paying, whether a player or a couple of players play or not. Um, You've got to focus. I think it just it, it puts the microscope on us to be much, much better in the fan experience, for, holistic fan experience of what are we doing to entertain you from the time you arrive to the time you leave. I think a good example of that, too, is when we look at tennis um, and, you know, you have something like where Serena comes in, everybody knows it's her last and the first, you know, four sessions of a, of a tournament all of a sudden go crazy and then you have the opposite where everybody gets knocked out in the finals or people, you know, in the double digits of the rankings and, and we're not really sure where that goes. So how do you use the data to inform, you know, what are the probabilities of that? You know, how are we better off pricing, you know, early based on everybody still being in the field? Middle is kind of, you know, a little bit of a dip and then you just take the chance on, on semifinals and finals. But that's a lot of where we see variability from, from a player standpoint as well. It's another Ryan question, but then hopefully it'll, it'll sp spread out as well. Um, how will the sales success of downsizing the target center mm -hmm. impact the future decision of more renovations versus building a new arena? Yeah, I, we got into it out of our season ticket base had been sort of depleted through you know COVID and, and the challenges that came from it. But... Um, it's informative around what a future new venue could look like if we're exploring a new venue. Certainly, it, you, know, you don't need 20,000 seats anymore. In fact, I think you're negatively impacted to, after a certain point on number of seats. Um, we talk about it all the time. Our demand has come back, and as we go into certain spaces, when will we expand capacity again? We did it for the playoffs last year. We wanted to give as many people. It wasn't about making more money for the playoffs. It was about giving more people access to, to come into the games. What we've found is that our arena actually functions much better with fewer people in it, right? So the arena experience from getting in to you know, concession lines, wait times, restrooms, all of that. So um, for us, we likely aren't gonna go back to an expanded capacity unless it's some version of playoffs or other. We have a lot of partners that are reducing capacity to lean heavier into hospitality to mm -hmm. be able to look at those type of experiences. I think looking coming out of COVID, you have people want, wanting a little more personal space um, in, in their experience of, of sports. And so they're, they're, you know, weighing, you know, we're taking away whatever it is, 5,000 seats in an NFL building, but we're building these more high-end hospitality areas where we can charge more and we have that demand. Yeah, I think differentiated product is where it's all, you know, going to head. I think that that's going to give teams and you know, m more opportunities to find revenue because just 
sheer number of seats isn't what's going to get them there. I think this segues nice into a final question where we look at the future um, of ticketing at large in the last three, four minutes that we have. Um, so looking to the future, what ticketing related trend or innovation or even regulation, um, or maybe it's a new metric that's on the horizon, um, do you foresee having the biggest impact on the industry? And we'll kind of just come right around. Right? I think it's already started to a degree, right? The extreme personalization of your experience. And I, I think it's such an exciting time. What this looks like in three years and five years is going to be completely different than even what it looks like today. Like, we've purposely given, as one example, significant discount on food and beverage and retail for our season ticket holders, but they have to use their mobile device to pay for it, right? So we have 27% of transactions in our building are now happening with your mobile device. It's incredible, the amount of data that we're collecting. And so if you're buying an Anthony Edwards jersey and an Anthony Edwards t-shirt, our ability now to take that data and now personalize what your experience is gonna be either experiential or attaching you know, uh, Anthony Edwards t-shirt to your next ticket promotion. Like we're, we're just, I wouldn't even say we're scratching the surface as an industry. It's, it's, at its very infancy, but it's going to look amazing at what opportunities it creates in the next three to five years. I think you stole my answer. <laughs> I was going to say personalization. Now I have to find something else. Um, well, I have two answers then. Um, I was going to say personalization on kind of steroids, because uh, whether you're a team or a property or a promoter, uh, when you think of the event life cycle, there are so many touch points with the fan or a potential fan, and any chance you have personalization for that they look at the premium seats. Okay, the next page perhaps it should be something about a premium offering. Or are they, again, buying on the resale? Or um, did they look at a number of events or just one event that they're interested in? Or did they come back to your site? Uh, you know, there's a lot of technology today that does that kind of like identity resolution that uh, if you signed in and became a known person, now your traffic from when you were in an unknown state, it's visible, visible to the website um, owner. So how do we act on that behavior and this real-time personalization? So I think that's going to continue to be the case. Again, going back to the property or venue, it's not just a website. It's not just an e-commerce platform. It's not just hospitality. Uh, it's all of the above. So any point you can do, uh, the personal, personalize the fan experience, and up to be able to optimize that was going to be key. My second answer was slightly going to be um, we have um, the palm scanning. We'll see if it's going to grow or not. Uh, Amazon is the partner we had. Uh, like they have their own their stores. We've tried a couple of venues. Um, I'm kind of you know, curious, and that could be a metric mm. <laughs> that we start looking at in a few years. Fantastic. I'm looking forward to that. You stole my answer. Okay. Because, um, <laughs> I do think that access control is something that's going to continue to evolve, whether it's biometrically or um, you know, some other mechanism to get people into uh, venues more quickly, more efficiently. I think the other thing is, uh, you know, with, with the incredible building of new facilities in the last, you know, 15 years, I think the game day experience has continued to evolve, continued to get better. But one thing that hasn't really come to fruition that we were all talking about probably 10 years ago was sort of the convergence of that experience with your handheld device and how it really becomes sort of a, a supplement to what's happening inside the venue. Um, so I, I think that there's opportunities there, but I think the bigger one is the efficiency of getting into uh, into the venues, which is a real pain point uh, for, and it could not only be getting into the venue, but cars getting into parking lots. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it, those hurdles are ones that really are 
are dragging down the game day experience and are reasons people may choose not to go. So we've got to continue to work on that. Yeah, I think on the ticketing side is we, you know, teams lean more and properties lean more and more in, into the integrated marketplaces and the concept of one marketplace. I think you're going to have teams taking a really hard look at what does, you know, what is the optimization? What is the best number of season tickets? What, how, what's the best number of mini plans? What does that look like as far as where we place our comp holds, things like that? And really trying to, to understand the data more completely as it relates to what is our upside on, on secondary versus primary versus how we you know, create that product mix for our specific market. And, and as Ryan spoke to, like, it's not always transferable to every market. And I think it's, it's going to take a deep dive into that um, to, to really go towards the future. Sounds great. Looking forward to it all. I want to thank our panelists, uh, Ryan, Cezin, Brian, and Molly. Got Ryan and Brian. Uh, thank you all for coming. Hope you enjoy this panel and hope you enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.